Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. All right, uh, on our break away, our writing development study break away, um, I, I went with 10 binders uh, thinking that I was going to be, I wasn't quite sure which of my projects, whether, you know, whether it's retreats, seminars, uh, or workshops that I'm constantly writing. So I took 10, uh, 10 different ones uh, with because I'm always uh, revising them and strengthening them to some I'm building them brand, uh, brand new. And uh, so I wasn't quite sure what I was going to be working on, but while I was there, the Holy Spirit directed me into two brand new projects. So uh, that mean, it means it's like 12 binders now, I think, or something like that, but it's not complete. But one of them uh, I, I really got excited about because it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. I, f- I felt like we needed a tool uh, that would help on the discipleship end, but a different kind of tool than what I had been used to using that I had developed uh, back when we were in Woodstock, led a lot of people to Christ in the early days of Woods, uh, here at, at Southland as well. And uh, at that time, I, I made topical kind of lessons, you know, something on the Bible, something on Jesus, something on the Holy Spirit, something on this, something on that, and, uh, uh, you know, the future and so on, and redemption, salvation, etc. And people would get saved and stuff, but they didn't understand the big picture. And I feel that many Christians don't understand the big picture of what the Bible is trying to say. And uh, so I've been thinking about that for quite some time, and, but in the meantime, I've got other projects that I've got to be working on to help uh, here, but also uh, with other pastors and that kind of stuff. And, um, and so uh, I was pretty excited when all at once I realized the Holy Spirit woke me up early one morning, and, and uh, as I was leaving the bedroom, uh, said, don't you see that what you're working on right in this piece here right now, that would help you on your... On, on that meta-narrative, the bigger story, the grand story, as I've entitled it. And I came back and, uh, and uh, told uh, Chris Dirksen, Chris Puach, and a few others, Grace Fast, and so on and so forth, and uh, they were quite excited about it. I think it's going to be a tremendous tool in the future, kind of like our, some of the other tools that we use here, and uh, can be used uh, not only for brand new believers, but for discipling us, so that it will strengthen us in our faith for the days that we face. And I was excited about singing about the day when he returns, weren't you? It just gets me, it, it just got me so choked up. And I can't wait. I am done with this, this present world system, aren't you? The evil and the wickedness, I'm just so done with it. And I say, Jesus, even so, come. But in the meantime, he's asked us to occupy. He's asked us to serve and to work diligently, and every day I submit to his lordship and I say, God, what do you want us to do? And what's the next step? And I beg him, and I know Grace Fastener teams are, I beg him for just a little more time because I feel there's so much work that needs to be done uh, to prepare the church for the days that are coming. And so I believe it will, this tool will strengthen our resolve and perseverance and endurance in the future, particularly, I think, also the youth. And uh, number two, I think it'll help in, in our Bible reading because we've got to be in the Word where God can speak to us. But when you're in the Word, you know, you get to Leviticus and you halfway through Exodus and, and, and you don't understand what, what was this all about. And then people ask, uh, you know, the uh, Christians are 
sort of back on their heels. The culture is on the offensive now, and Christians are back on their heels. They don't even want to bring up the topic of God or the Bible because they're afraid of some of the questions they're going to get. Stuff like, why, how, how could God kick out people out of the land and uh, give it to a bunch of people called the Jews and that kind of stuff, and it's just not right and that kind of stuff. But if, and our people sometimes are, uh, Christians are, are tentative about some of these difficult questions, but they wouldn't be so difficult if they understood the big picture. In fact, they wouldn't have to know some of the propositional truths, like if they ask this, then you say this. If they say this, then you say that. You know, that kind of thing. Who memorizes and thinks like that? Chris does, and Tom, <laughs> and Dr. Uh, Vanderbregen, maybe, or something like that. But uh, not many. Uh, the rest of us uh, uh, people, like myself, uh, we think in more on the story side, right? And uh, we can't memorize all that kind of stuff. And if you understand the story, a lot of those things would be much easier to handle, and the Holy Spirit would be able to give you answers on the way because you understand. And so I think that's important. And the third thing is I believe God's going to use it as an evangelism tool. The way I used to do it with the discipleship materials on a topical basis, Alpha does the same thing. We use Alpha here. It's a fantastic program. They started as a discipleship, became an evangelism tool. I think this grand story could really have an impact. And uh, sitting with people who don't know Christ, that there's a, there's a huge middle ground. There's sort of the, there's kind of a bourgeois class that is trying to push out uh, Christianity altogether out of our society and culture. But I believe there's a huge middle that hasn't made that decision yet. And if they heard this story and it made sense, they would receive Jesus. Don't you think so? And so that's what, I'm, uh, that's what I'm working on, and that's what we're going to talk about. So why don't we bow our heads for prayer, and then we'll move forward in this message, because I'm going to lay some groundwork, and this tool will have the groundwork in it as well as we talk about the grand story. Father, we just ask that by your Spirit, you would just give us uh, a sense of urgency, not just this morning, but day after day, and um, an urgency to recognize that the time is exceedingly short, and also a, uh, an anticipation, the kind of anticipation we had as we were singing just a few moments ago. Thank you for that song. Thank you that you inspire gifted people to write songs that come, I think, right from your heart and express for us what we're feeling inside. And I pray for people here who are sitting on a fence, who have not made it a, a true decision. Oh, they might be religious, might go to church, but they haven't actually taken a step to submitting to your lordship. We pray that as they consider some of the truths we look at this morning, and as they look at the series that we're going to go into, that they would, they would clearly realize that this is the truth and uh, that they must act on it while there is still time. Father, strengthen our resolve and our perseverance. Give us a love for you like we've never had before. Help us in that. Thank you for the love that, that has grown here, that your spirit has been responsible for leading us into. And uh, we just uh, bless your name, Lord. We really do. We bless you, Lord, because you bless us so much. 
And we want to tell you we love you this morning. So speak to our hearts and strengthen our minds and our hearts and our resolve in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed by saying, amen. Have you ever wondered what the Bible is all about? What the unifying whole of the Bible is, what it's trying to say? Uh, I'm not suggesting that I, that I understand it perfectly, but I think I understand it better than I did 30 years ago. The Bible is unique because it is history written from God's point of view. A political history of the world has a focus determined on human interest. But in the Bible, God selects what is important to him, hence the title, God's Grand Story. God has a plan for the world. He's had it all along. You see, the Bible is not an ancient book with random stories and rules. There's a grand storyline. It has a start. It has a finish. It's going somewhere. <clears throat> and I want to share that story with you over the next uh, weeks and, later, and, and beyond. We'll begin with Genesis. Genesis isn't just the first book. It's foundational for the whole Bible. Most, if not all, fundamental, fundamental biblical truths are found here, at least in embryo form. So let's start there. In the beginning, God. <laughs> That's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first book of the Bible is appropriately titled Genesis, which means beginnings or origins, and it is really... And it really is filled with beginnings. Our universe, sun, the moon, the stars, planet, earth, plants, birds, fish, animals, humans, sex, marriage, civilization, government, sin, death, murder, war. Uh, but it is clear that God himself does not begin here. When you read that verse, it's evident that God himself doesn't, be, uh, doesn't find his beginning in Genesis. God is already there when the Bible opens, for he was already there when the universe came to be. In the beginning, let's, say that, uh, let's read that together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Bible doesn't try to prove his existence because it is self-evident. Whatever begins to exist, somebody said, must have a cause. This is an old syllogism. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. Wouldn't you agree? At least with magic, you have a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? Every day, ex everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our... Uh, uh, confirm this. Number two, the universe began to exist. So whatever began to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist. It says God created the heavens and the earth. Now, did the universe begin or has it always existed as many are trying to say it has? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. Bertrand Russell said, universe is just there and that's all. What kind of philosophy and science is that? Are you serious? The second law of thermodynamics tells us that the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. 
If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now, wouldn't it have? Therefore, the universe had to have a beginning. This is further supported by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and, and uh, George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. That it's expanding. Just hang on to that for a sec. In 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the redshift and light from distant galaxies, and this evidence, empirical evidence, confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. Does that make you happy? Sure makes me happy. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, and for good cause, because that means then somebody has created it. It was a monumental discovery. However, not uh, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence, uh, but one by one these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, 2003, three leading cos cosmologists Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vlenkin proved that any universe which has been expanding through its history cannot be eternal in the past. It must have had an absolute beginning. Those of you that are students in school, you need to be listening very carefully right now. Because this is not what they teach in university. This is not what they teach in school. This means that the scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning, said Alexander Vilenkin. So this all means that the conclusion is also true, which is, number three, therefore the universe has a... Therefore the universe has a... Cause. If it started somewhere, if, if matter hasn't always been, then it must have had a cause. By the way, right now, we're not, we're not going to the Scriptures for any of this. We just, we just started with Genesis 1-1 in this grand story we're looking at, and that's where we're parked right now. I'm trying to see if I can beat Chris in this, and make ten messages out of half of a verse. I doubt that I can, but, but I'm going to try. No. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless. It must be timeless. It must be immaterial. We're talking about the cause now. It must be uncaused and unbelievably powerful. Wouldn't you agree? Would you agree with that, church? Huh. That sounds much like um, God, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like God. This one argument reveals that it is reasonable to believe God exists. Nor do we need the Bible to tell us other things about God which we can deduce by using our eyes and our minds. We did this without even going to Scripture. I mean, yes, the Bible says that, but the Bible doesn't prove the existence of God. We did this through simple deduction. 
But there's other things we can deduce about God. Did you know that? It's possible to list some of the self-evident truths about God. You say, why are you doing this? I thought we are talking about the whole story. We are, but we've got to lay the foundation. Because if you're going to help your children and uh, grow them in the story of the Scriptures and, and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you're going to have to answer these kinds of questions. Amen? And this is going to be in those kind of materials, this kind of stuff. There'll be more of it but, than what I can speak on, but this kind of stuff has to be in there as well. It's possible to list some of these self-evident truths about God. He must be a God of tremendous power. Isn't that true? Think about it. If he's the cause, he must be very powerful. Would you agree with that, church? Every tiny atom is packed with potential power. Man employs enormous power to hurl three-quarters of a ton of metal out of Earth's gravitational pull and into space, spacecraft. By comparison, can we begin to imagine the sort of power needed to get the Earth itself into orbit? Not a spacecraft, but a whole planet into orbit. What kind of power does that take? Oh, wow. Or pack the sun with the energy that fills our solar system? What kind of power does that take? The one who created that kind of power cannot himself be less powerful than what he created. Isn't it true? Is that logical? He must be a God of inconceivable power. Praise the Lord. Number two, he must be a God of tremendous intelligence. You know, man prides himself on his intelligence because he can understand the universe in which he lives. <laughs> I always get a kick out of that. Well, we now understand this. Yeah, but try making it. <laughs> and what if you had tried to figure it out in the first place? It's one thing to figure it out after the fact and play with different things, come with theories, and then work, work backwards. It's another thing to come out from a vacuum in your brain and try to come up with something like that. Wouldn't you agree? Incredible intelligence. Because he understands the universe in which he lives. Though, in fact, the more man finds out, the less he seems to know. Doesn't it seem to, uh, to be that way? They, they, I mean, knowledge is just quadruple. I mean, it just keeps multiplying. And no sooner have they discovered this than they go, oh my, that opens up another whole, whole world. How much more intelligent must be the one who made it all? Take water, for example. What an amazing complexity is involved in this apparently simple substance which keeps our planet clean. It uh, keeps it fertile and it keeps it cool. That's why they're always looking when they're looking at other uh, planets and stuff. They're always looking. Does it have water on it somewhere? The tides move endlessly, washing our shores and bays and inlets. Isn't that true? Keeping them clean. That's why I like where Bird River is, uh, camp is situated, don't you? All those other lakes, they get green. Ugh. <laughs> but not Bird River. She just keeps getting cleaned. After the kids have been in there, <laughs> we'll move on. Millions of gallons of water are caught up into the air every day and then dropped back onto the land, often from an altitude of several miles. And yet so gently that it sustains life without harming plants, animals, or humans. God must not only be almighty, but incredibly intelligent. Would you agree? We just deduced that. 
Well, then he must be, this cause, this God, must be God alone. There can be no other creative mind in the universe. In fact, it is just that, a universe, one verse, not a multiverse. However far we probe into space, we find that it runs on the same lines. Gravity, velocity still apply. It's not like you move on a little bit in space and now it's a whole new set of rules. Would you agree? It's the same. The inescapable conclusion is that there is one God and only one. And he's managing and holding together the universe he has made. Wow, we've deduced that. Let's, let, let's think about another thing. He must be personal. Well, you say, how oh, can you come up with that? Well, it's completely logical. Think about it. As you look about, the highest, most advanced, and apparently most significant creature on the planet is what? Or who? Man. And personality, which distinguishes mankind from the animals, seems to be the most important quality in the universe. Can God, who created personality, be less than what he created? Yes or no? Can he, church? Can he be less than what he created? He created man. Man is amazing. Mankind, right? Men and women and, and teens and children. They're amazing, aren't they? Amazing. Can he be less than that? No. Can he be more than that? Yes, he can be more than that. So when we're made in his image, <clears throat> we can be like him in some things, but that doesn't mean God is like us in everything. Some things he's like us. So he's not made in our image, we're made in his image, and that covers some of what he is, and then he's much more than that. But one of the things he must be is personality. If mankind needs relationships, then... God must be in some kind of relationship. It's interesting, the Bible says, let us make God, uh, man. Isn't that something? No, let us make God. Let us make man. That's what it says, right? Hint, a hint at the Trinity. And we won't get into that right now. He may be, indeed he is, much more than I am, but he cannot be less less since he created me. The distinguishing marks of personality are such things as thinking, feeling, deciding, speaking, relating to other persons. It follows then that God too must what? Think, feel, decide, speak, and relate to other persons. So without resorting to the Bible, we've learned a great deal that there must be a God, that he's powerful, intelligent one, and personal, and what an incredible thing we came up with. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Thank you for helping me. Second thing we notice is that God spoke, and he's kept a record of what he has said. He spoke in the Bible, but there, uh, there's something else here. If God created personal creatures, humans, and we deduce that he is personal... Isn't it completely logical and reasonable to think that he would then want to communicate with us? Yes or no? Take a look at this. Without going to the Bible, it makes perfect logical sense. It's very reasonable, isn't it? But which religious book do you turn to? 
which is the right one? <laughs> because there's others that say they are the right one, and they have the words recorded of God. Well, don't you think that the same God, <clears throat> who's all-powerful, as we just saw, is incredibly intelligent, way beyond us, that he is able to get a message to us and then preserve it? Is it logical? I mean, once you posit God, almost everything's possible then, isn't it? And um, I should think that if we conclude that part A is correct, that what we said, then the rest pretty much falls into place. Then it's just a matter of carefully observing some things to determine which is the book that is indeed a record of what he spoke to mankind. And let's look at three things. We're not even going to look at the external stuff. I did some messages on that years ago, but... Um, we're just going to look at a little bit of internal evidence right now to see if, the, if we can see fingerprints of God on this book that we call the Bible, all right? Suppose, uh, first of all, the Bible fits the facts of what we just deduced by good rationale. Ha! We deduced all these things. We got to this point where we now say, I think he speaks, he, he could very well speak and have recorded it because he personally wants to communicate. And uh, if I want a relationship with my wife, I'll communicate one way or another, some way. And uh, we see th then that the Bible fits the facts that we just deduced by good rationale. If the, what we deduced is correct, then we would expect that the message in which he spoke would say the same things. Would you agree? I just, I just want you to go with me all the way. and, and um, Suppose this personal God has spoken about himself. Suppose the record of what he said is about himself is still available. Then surely we would be in a position to confirm or, uh, confirm or reject ideas about him which we arrived at simply by using our reasoning abilities. Christians believe that God has done precisely that. Let's check it out. He's revealed himself through human agents, prophets, who wrote the compendium we call the Bible. It's a biblia, comes from Latin, which means library or books, plural. Now, does this picture coincide with what we have already deduced, or does it conflict with what our brain tells us about the world around us? The amazing thing is that when we turn to the Bible, we find that all the things indicated by reason are confirmed by revelation. The Bible indicates, for example, that God is the creator. Ha-ha! In the beginning, God what? Created the heavens and the earth. Ha! Just what we deduced. That God is infinitely powerful. That the world came into being at his word uh, of command. That's power, wouldn't you agree? And throughout the scriptures, God is seen as one who thinks, he speaks, he feels, he decides, relates to others, uh, other beings in a personal way. And all the ideas we discussed earlier are confirmed and then even extended from there. We can only get so far with our rational uh, minds and our logic and reason, but isn't it interesting that he has made it so that those who want to find him can find him? And then he says, since you have found me, if you'll follow me, I'll, I'll tell you more. And he's recorded it. It's, it's really Amazing. What we have just concluded is precisely that some later, uh, what some later biblical writers expected we should conclude. They said, uh, Psalmist said, 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And then in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, has a powerful peace. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, were we just talking about them? Were we just talking about the invisible qualities? Yes, we were. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, not written, made, so that men are without excuse. Amen. He says, you can, you can find yourself, you can find your way to the true God just through thinking. That is precisely the exercise we just went through. The Apostle Paul says that God has given us the ability to reason ourselves in a simple manner to the logical conclusions we just came to. Of course, our rational and logical, like I said already, and so don't email me on this one, doesn't mean we can understand everything about God. So there are a lot of things that will take you by surprise here, but, but already we find ourselves coming to this God of the Bible. This understanding gives us confidence that where the Bible speaks beyond what we can reason out ourselves, we can trust it to test it further by personal experience. Second, the Bible reveals, uh, so the Bible doesn't just fit the facts of what we deduce by good rationale, but the Bible also reveals an internal harmony only God could have orchestrated. The Bible isn't one book, as I mentioned, it's 66 books written in three different languages, written by over 40 authors, written at intervals over a period of 1,400 years, that's 60 generations roughly, written in different lands from Italy to the west, uh, in the west to the, uh, possibly Persia or Iran in the east, three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. You'd think there'd be a lot of disparity like that, wouldn't you? In what they would say. Not only were the writers separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, they belonged to the most diverse walks of life. Some were kings. There was kings like Solomon, David, herdsmen. Well, David was a herdsman too. Soldiers, legislators, fishermen like Peter, statesmen, courtiers, priests, prophets, a tent-making rabbi, a gentle physician, and a tax collector. Wow! They weren't all writers. They weren't part of the Writers Guild. They came from every walk of life. And uh, the scriptures, these 66 books, were written in a wilderness. They were written in, some were written in a dungeon, inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands, and in military battles. That's incredible. And the Bible contains many different genres, like poetry, myth, wisdom, literature, prophecy, letters, narratives. It is no surprise, therefore, that many people come to the Bible wondering how it all fits together. Yet it does. The Bible presents a single unfolding story. Norman Geisler and William Nix, uh, in a takeoff on the two poems by John Milton, 
said it is the paradise lost of Genesis, the paradise lost of Genesis becomes the paradise regained of Revelation. And whereas the gate to the tree of life is closed in Genesis, it is open forevermore in Revelation. Don't you look forward to that? There's some pretty neat stuff about that, but we won't have time today. Unifying thread is salvation from sin and condemnation to a life of complete transformation and unending bliss in the presence of the one holy and merciful God. Wow! And this points to something unique and unheard of in the world before. How, how, how is that possible? Contrast that with the compilation of Western classics called the Great Books of the Western World. They contain selections from more than 450 works by close to 100 authors spanning a period of 25 centuries. centuries uh, uh, writers like Homer, Plato, Aristotle, and Augustine, and Aquinas, and Dante, and Hobbes, Spinoza, uh, Calvin, Rousseau, Shakespeare, and so on. And while these writers are all part of the Western tradition of ideas, they often display an incredible diversity of views on just about every subject. Wow! Is that amazing? He said, well, I'm not entirely sure, not entirely sure that you're going to be able to show me that this has a, has, has a full thing. Come back next Sunday. And the next Sunday, and the next few, right? While their views share some commonalities, they also display numerous conflicting and contradictory positions and perspectives. Not only that, but this book is different from any other book of history in that it starts earlier <laughs> in the beginning, and it ends later. It writes history that hasn't been lived. Is that amazing? Oh, this is not ordinary. This is a very different book. You want to treat this one differently than all the rest. Third, uh, we looked at uh, internal harmony, and we looked at the fact that it uh, verifies facts that we came deduced by our reasoning. But third, the Bible, as we're looking at some internal evidence, fulfilled, has fulfilled prophecies that reveal God's fingerprints on the Bible. Wow. Is that amazing? Is there anything inside the Bible that's supernatural, cannot be explained by human intelligence? Is there anything inside the Bible that is unique, that can't be found in any other religious holy book? You know? There's so many people these days who are saying Christianity is just like every other religion. And the Bible is no better than any other religious book. Oh, yeah? <laughs> try what we're going to try now. The question is, is there anything in the Bible that sets it apart, that proves that God wrote this one and not any of the others? And the answer is emphatically yes. Unfortunately, um... Few Christians ever use this proof to defend the Bible and point people towards God, even though God himself said this is the one, one of the defining proofs for his existence and one of the defining proofs to determine whether or not he wrote something. You say, what's the proof? Fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the most stunning proofs for the existence of God and irrefutable evidence that the Bible is far and away above and beyond every other religious book. See, we're setting the tone. Is there God? 
how can we tell the story of God, God's grand story, if we are not even sure that he really exists? And how can we tell it as told in the scriptures if we're not sure that the scriptures are the actual word of God? Amen? So that's why we're starting here. And as the culture comes after us, we will need to be certain within our hearts and our minds that this is indeed the eternal word of God that will never, ever perish. It will never fade away. Do you agree with that, church? I love this book. Do you love this book? How many of you love this book? Yeah. Maybe you should bring it to church then. Uh, huh. Novel idea, huh? You say, well, we got the PowerPoint. I know, I know. I still bring it. Uh, I always bring it to the services, even when Chris is preaching. I always bring it, because I'm never sure what he's writing up there. <laughs> I want to check for myself. What's my son saying? No. Just kidding. The Bible is unlike any other religious book in the world in that it is filled with prophecy. Some scholars have estimated 27% of the Bible is made up of prophecy. Now, that's a lot. That's more than a quarter of the, of the, of, of the Bible. Now, granted, a big chunk of that 27 is made up of end-time prophecies, which we can't use as proof for the Bible since it hasn't happened yet. But within that 27%, there are many, many prophecies that are filled with specific details, and in some cases, names written hundreds of years beforehand, which then came true exactly as predicted, and there's no other religious book in the world that is so tied to prophecy like this. The Quran, for example, does, does have some prophecies, very few, but they're short, general, and vague. By contrast, the Bible is filled with very risky prophecies. They are long, some of them taking up multiple chapters, they're detailed and they're very specific. You ask, why would God put so much risky prophecy in the Bible? Because he wanted to stamp his fingerprint. He took it, put it in ink, and went like that. You can't miss it. That's why he put it, uh, put it that way. What can an atheist say to fulfilled prophecy? You can't explain prophecy away in human terms because no human being can predict specific details of events hundreds of years in advance and have them come true. Isn't that right? And other religious books may be able to duplicate a few of the Bible's ethics, but they can't duplicate its fulfilled prophecies. The Bible itself puts itself on the hook and challenges all other books to the test of prophecy. I'll give you a few verses. And uh, for years, I, I've got it, I got them marked all over. I do it with a lot of topics in my Bible, but it's just really badly marked. But uh, this is one of the earlier ones I did in this particular Bible was, was that whole thing about prophecy. Isaiah 41 says, Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says the, uh, Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Oh, that's where God, uh, Elijah got his idea of, of putting out a challenge and a contest. 
God had been doing that all along. Want to know if a book was written by God? Does it tell you the future? Does it tell you what is going to happen before it happens? Isaiah 44, 7. Let's try that one. Who then is like me? God, this is God speaking. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay it out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. If you can do that, God says, then you are like me. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? Isaiah 42 says, I'm the Lord, that is my name. What is the proof that he is the Lord? I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, new things I declare, before they, what? Spring, Spring into being, I announce them to you. God is amazing. Can you say God is amazing? Oh, yeah. He's amazing. Even Jesus affirmed the importance of prophecy for proving whether or not something is from God. He says, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So let me, well, yeah, let me blow your mind. And show you proof that the Bible was written by a supernatural being, God. And that the Bible is far and away above any other religious book. We'll only have time for two risky ones today. And even there, I can't develop them as much as I would like, just because of the sake of time. I, I had to take other ones, real good ones, out, and I got them scribbled all over in my Bible. I could show you how Daniel specifically prophesied that the Greek Empire would conquer the Medio Persian Empire. We don't have time for that. And he did it with, and he, he did it past one empire that hadn't even come into being, and he prophesied the next one. <laughs> That's amazing, but I won't go into that one. Uh, here's example one Israel back in the land, because you can't late date that one. Jeremiah 30 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people. Now look what it says, Israel and Judah, back from captivity and restore them in the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. Now listen to me, in history, there's only two times when Israel's gone into exile. The first time was into Babylonian exile, but guess what? It wasn't uh, the northern, king, uh, northern ten tribes of Israel that went into that. They were defeated by these Assyrians. It was the it was, the, uh, it was the southern kingdom of Judah, and they went into exile in Babylon. But here, it says Israel and Judah are coming back from captivity. Israel never came back from captivity. Only Judah was brought from, back from captivity after 70 years. Israel went into captivity a second time after 70 AD, well, into exile, and scattered all over the nations. Has she come back? Yes or no? Ah, isn't that amazing? And some of you, well, we've all lived to see that they're back in the land, and some of you actually saw it come back in the land. How many of you are here that actually were alive when it happened? It's a profound story. It's incredible. 
Yet Jeremiah says both are coming. Second, they come from many nations, not in Babylonian activity. Ezekiel 38 says the same thing. It says, in future years you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations. Not from just Assyria and from Babylon. From many nations. That didn't happen in the first exile. To the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate, they had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. And by the way, you have to be careful which of the Old Testament one, uh, uh, prophecies you use for that, because, believe it or not, and this is going to come out in this series, there's one more exile coming, and I'll leave it at that. And they're going to be brought back again, and I'm going to be able to prove it. Notice that the people were gathered from many nations, and... Uh, uh, and that happened in 1948. Well, let's go to example two. Isaiah prophesies that Cyrus will send Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah predicted by name the rise of one of the most famous kings in all of ancient history, 150 to 250 years before he was born. Didn't just say that there <clears throat> was going to be a king that was going to do it. He actually named him. What are the chances of that? That's incredible. In addition to naming this powerful king, he also foretold some specific details about this king's life and what he would do. He predicted that this king would rebuild the city of Jerusalem, that he would rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Not only that, he predicted that this king would do it for free. For no selfish reasons of personal gain or anything like that, he predicted that this king would be so powerful that Egypt and other African nations would bring him tribute. Let's look at the predictions. Who, he's talking in context there about the Lord, says of, what's his name? Cyrus. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple... Your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I've stirred him up in righteousness, and I'll make him, or make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. Is that detailed, or is that detailed? Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you. There is no other, no God besides you. Four reasons why this prophecy is amazing. I already mentioned that it was... Uh, um, uh, that it happened 150, 250 years beforehand. Uh, but number one, God named the king who he would use by name. That's gutsy. And, uh, and, and he does it way before. And this, of course, is referring to Cyrus, the great king of the Medes and Persians, one of the most famous kings in ancient history. And second, when Isaiah makes this prophecy, Jerusalem is strong and healthy. She doesn't even think she's going into exile. Never mind coming back from exile. <laughs> That's amazing. Number three. 
When Isaiah makes his prophecy, the Medes and Persian, uh, Mede and Persian Empire, of which Cyrus was to be head, wasn't even on the map. Oh, that's amazing. The reigning superpower in the Middle East at that time were the Assyrians, and that's why I've got it on there the way I have. When he made the prediction, the Assyrians were the superpower. And before the Persians would rise as super, uh, the Medo-Persians would rise as the superpower, there would be one more before it, the Babylonians, who would unseat the Assyrians and destroy uh, Jerusalem. That, that, that means Isaiah was predicting two superpowers in advance, just like Daniel had done. Daniel did it about a different set. This was a, this was a unique set. There's no way he could have figured it out or guessed it just by watching the trends in the political section of his newspaper. Persia had no influence in Israel in Isaiah's day. And fourth, this prophecy assumes that not only would Jerusalem be destroyed, its inhabitants would be exiled, because Isaiah predicted that Cyrus would not only rebuild Jerusalem, he would, do, would also free the exiles. Absolutely amazingly incredible. And God says, when I do those kinds of things, by the way, as many of the prophets, we could go to prophecies about Jesus and stuff, but we're using some historical ones that can be verified archaeologically and historically. And God prophesied like this. As we look at the story of the Bible, we recognize it begins with Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, it does not prove God because the existence of God is self-evident, as we saw. But it supports everything that we already deduced. Is there a God? <laughs> it's more, much more reasonable to believe that there's a God. It takes less faith to believe that there's a God than to posit that there is no God. You've got to have an incredible amount of faith to believe there's no God. Unbelievable amount of faith. The lie of the devil is that those stupid Christians, they just believe without thinking. The truth of the matter is they have a more credible thing that they believe in than what the world doesn't believe in. Do you believe that? And we discovered that it's perfectly rational that he should want to communicate with us because of what he created. We're communicating kind of people. We're relational. He cannot be less than what we are. And he said, he recorded it. And he said his word in Isaiah would stand forever. And he said, I'll prove that this is my word and not some other document. I'll prove it. And then he gave us these internal proofs that we talked about. Three key internal proofs, prophecies, internal harmony, and the verification of the deductions that we had already come, come to ourselves. What an amazing God, would you agree? Does it make you want to bow down and worship him? Let me conclude it this way. He said, he challenges you and me. 
He said, now that you, you can see very clearly, this, uh, this really seems to be the truth. I challenge you one more time, God says. In Psalm 34, 8, do you know what he says? Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what he's saying? Try it. Test it. Not just with your head. You've come to that with your head. Why don't you try it? Test it. Taste and see if he is that. What a God that would allow you to do it. You, before you buy a car, you test it, right? Before you, when you go to restaurants, you test them. You test food. You test all kinds of things. You go on a date. Why? You're testing the other person to see if they're good. Taste and see whether she's good, any good. Amen? And I'm talking about being appropriate. <laughs> the minute I said that, I went, oh, no, I should have stayed with my notes. But you know what I mean. Wow. Strike that from the tape. Taste and see that he's good. In what kind of ways? Psalm 73, 24. There's many ways you can test them. This morning we were singing that song. When you come to know him, he speaks to you and he does unusual things inside. Only that's an experience. Many of you were wiping tears in that song we sang twice. Because there's been an experience that just floods your heart with such incredible joy. You've experienced, you've tasted and seen that the Lord was good. Amen? Amen. Nobody could convince you otherwise. It's beyond logic now. It's into a relationship. It'd be as foolish as trying to, somebody trying to tell me that Fran is a figment of my imagination after 42 years of marriage. Are you serious? Taste and see that the Lord is good. You say, well, like what? There's so many ways, but one of them is, he says, I will guide you. Um, some, oh, I think I have it up there, right? Your, uh, what does it say? You guide me with your counsel. That's one way. Can he actually guide you? If he's never guided you, why don't you test it? Why don't you ask the, somebody to help you? This week, he guided me again. I wrote a bunch of things, but I'm out of time, and I want, I want, I want them to sing yet. So I won't... I'm keeping it away. But he guided me in three or four different ways just this week. Last week again. I mean, when it happens over and over and over, it just becomes the norm. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He gives amazing counsel. Maybe you're here, you don't know Jesus. <laughs> I just helped you logically. See that this is very reasonable, reasonable what it's saying. 
And you can come to know God through the person of Jesus Christ. He can take away your sin. We'll get to that in the series yet, but right now, maybe you came to visit us. I don't want you to leave without knowing that you can have a relationship. Why don't you try him? Why don't you taste him? He challenges you. If you don't, you have no excuse when you stand before him one day. He challenges you. He said, I would, I, I'm going to make myself, I'm going to make myself personal. I'm going to, I'm going to demonstrate myself to you if you'll taste. But if you won't do it, you will have only yourself to blame for all eternity. Only yourself. There's no excuse. So why don't you just follow along in a prayer that I'm going to pray. You don't have, you pray it in your heart. And if you don't know how to taste and see the Lord is good, why don't you talk to that friend that brought you or come see one of us or the staff or somebody that you might know here. Dear God, I recognize that I'm, uh, that uh, I've been holding out on you. I've been listening to what the culture is saying. The culture, from what I heard today, doesn't sound like it's standing on a whole lot. That's right. It's sinking sand. So Lord, the challenge is there that I can taste and see if you are as good as the, your word says and that people around here seem to think you are. They get emotional about you because they've experienced you just like a husband or a wife get emotional about each other. And so I want to taste that. And I don't understand it all, but, I understand, but, but through Jesus, I know I can come to the Father. So I receive him today in my heart. And I want to taste him. And I want to submit to him. I want to relate to him. I want to follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.